Welcome back again to BadQuaker.com. Uh, this is for Wednesday, September 7th, 2011, and this is podcast episode 22 of BadQuaker.com podcast. I'm Ben. And I'm Kai. Um, we want to cover a couple things that we touched on last week, and maybe uh, <laughs> also touch on the uh, the great water, uh, the great... Um, <laughs> kitchen flooding of 2011. <laughs> where do you go from? Where do you draw the line from? It's it's wet or it's flooded. What? How do you? Is it like? Is it like a millimeter of water is wet and two millimeter is flooded, or is it like it's it's moist so we call it wet, but if it slops when you walk on it, we're flooded. Or I don't know. <laughs> I think it's all about the drama. I think so. If you want to make it dramatic, you call it flooding. And if you just want to calm people down, it's just a little wet. It's just it's just some water. It's fine. <laughs> so, well, okay. So let's talk about that. So, uh, our entire Tuesday, everything got blown away from Tuesday because uh, Monday night, um, a faucet internally malfunctioned and died and dumped water for probably close to an hour. Uh, without us realizing what was going on into our kitchen. Uh, and I say our, my, myself and my wife's kitchen. Kai was off at her house at the time, so she knew nothing about this. But uh, so roughly an hour or so of water uh, flowing into the cabinets and into the back of the wall behind the sink. And then it manifests itself with, uh, when it finally filled enough of the cabinets that it all decided to come escaping out, and running across the floor and going from side to side of the kitchen and all down into the basement through the back wall behind the the uh, sink uh, when we found it. And wonderfully, <laughs> the the competent, competent, wonderful uh, construction individuals, plumbers, uh, in, <laughs> inspectors, engineers, everyone involved in building this house in 1969 when it was built thought somehow it was a good idea not to have individual valves at the kitchen sink like, you know, normal plumbing does. And so you can't shut the valve off right at the kitchen sink. You have to kill water to the entire house. So this, so then... Um, That's what happens when you have federally mandated codes that yeah. builders have to go to. Yeah, because then the standard lowers to whatever the code is uh, and never has to go above that because yep. you meet code. Good enough for government. That's yep. that's the old phrase, good enough for government. Well, there's a reason why that phrase exists because yep. that's the lower, that's how you lower a standard. You say it's good enough for government. That's In the aircraft industry, when I worked in, in the aircraft in, uh, engine, in, I, we didn't make airframes, we made engines. But in, when I was in the uh, defense and the aerospace industry and, and aircraft engines and so forth, that was a catchphrase, good enough for government work. In other words, mm -hmm. if it can get past someone, then it's good enough. Yeah. It doesn't have to it have... it meets the inspection. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, uh, it basically, it, it meets minimum. Mm -hmm. To meet minimum meant good enough for government. And that's when you draw a line. But here's the problem. When all this government money is dumping into things, good enough for government becomes the standard, and that lowers it down. We were talking about that. Uh, my husband and I were talking about that. In, we were driving 
uh, on the road. And uh, we were talking about roads and privatizing roads and, and construction and things. And uh, we were talking about how, you know, nobody really knows how a privatized system of roads would work because trying to predict how the market is going to have something work is, is silly and can't Futile. be done. Yes. And uh, so we were talking about how it's possible if if you had a system where um, a person got investors like businesses, local businesses, and built a road, mm-hmm. um, they are answerable. So mm-hmm. if that road is not kept in good repair or if the road, you know, if something goes wrong with it, mm-hmm. then they lose that investor money because right. businesses can take it away. But the state mm-hmm. never loses its money. Right. Because no there's how bad no, it fails. Yeah, there's no repercussions. There's mm-hmm. no chance of the investors pulling their money out because the investors are forced to give money through a gun barrel. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they uh, they have no choice. They have to. <laughs> so we uh, the next morning, we spent the better part of the morning between running around, buying all the parts that it took to replace all the pieces and cut the lines and put in proper valves, you know, so that uh, the sink functions correctly and uh, get everything back up and running. So that wiped out the first half, the second half of Monday and the first half of Tuesday. So we're, we've, Bad Quaker, we've been trying to put out some type of audio file every weekday. Mm-hmm. And for about the last three or four weeks, we've only been able to put out about three or four, at best, three or four files a week. So we're we're kind of falling on failure there. But uh, yeah, but it's good enough for government work. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, we're making minimum. <laughs> and, you know, it's not like you have to worry about your investors pulling out. That's true. That's the other thing about, uh, in this case, it's voluntary work. <laughs> you don't like it? Too bad. It's free. What do you want? Oh. <laughs> uh, so here's a funny thing I wanted to mention. Okay. Uh, on the Drudge Report, there's, uh, on Tuesday, there's a big headline that says, uh, Drudge wrong on privacy, according to Janet Napolitano. And this is coming from Politico, from the website Politico. And this is from um, Josh Gerstein. Hope I'm not messing up your name there, Josh. Uh, And he does this story. It's a good story that uh, Janet Napolitano is upset with Matt Drudge of the Drudge Report because he's always picking on her. You know, he's always putting up pictures of her looking like the mean monster that she is. You know, now here's poor Janet Napolitano, um, a person who supports institutionalized child abuse, Mm -hmm. a person who supports institutionalized sexual assault Mm -hmm. on innocent people, uh, a person who really doesn't like the light of truth shining upon her hideous evilness, and she's irritated because someone in the news industry is talking about her you know what we should do is we should hang matt drudge we should shoot the messenger because how dare he bring the evil message that this monstrous beast is bringing her hideous uh anyway so janet napolitano one of the worst human beings alive 
uh, doesn't like the the light of attention being Ooh, shined on her. We should do that. All the other cool uh, uh, talk show people, like, they have their worst person ever, like, <laughs> as their weekly spot. We should have a weekly worst person of the world. <laughs> um, what if it keeps being the same person <laughs> every week, though? Hey, Janet, you're there again. <laughs> <laughs> it's like when you go into a, you know, employee of the month and it's the same person every month. Yeah. Just their picture down the hallway. Yeah, it's it's really hard for me to imagine someone who represents the evilness of the state any more than Janet Napolitano. Now, you might say it's uh, George Bush when he was, pre- or George W. Bush when he was president, or, or you might say it's, uh, um, uh, what was his name, Dick Cheney. That It was a pretty, you know... I mean, you just look at that guy and you're like, look, it's the evil empire, evil emperor. He was the penguin. (laughs) Yeah, he did kind of look like the evil penguin, didn't he? You expect him. But, yeah. With the long (laughs) twisted mouth of his. Uh, But, you know, when you you think of all those people, and even if you can, if you're one of those people who just really hates Obama and you, you think of Obama as being the horrible, evil. Uh, the worst thing that the state could possibly produce. But when I think of Janet Napolitano, I think of a person who actually has given the order to institutionalize the molestation of children. Mm -hmm. And all of America sits back and goes, well, but it's so we're safe when we fly. Really? Are you that stupid? Yeah. It's not. No. It has nothing to do with safety. No. It has everything to do with feel-good politics. So you can feel good when you're flying because they molested some old lady. You feel safe. Right. That's all it is. Right. That's, I, I can't and, believe that. And the very idea that, you know, even if those policies were actually keeping people safe, and they're not, but right. even if they were, mm-hmm. it's not worth it. No. You know, I don't want... Some innocent five-year-old mm-hmm. getting felt up by some middle-aged man mm-hmm. so that I'm safe. Yeah. Like, I, that's not How acceptable. unbelievably egocentric, selfish, what, what kind of a monster would even think mm-hmm. that way? Oh, I want to make sure I'm safe, so go ahead and molest that old lady. Yeah. Go ahead and molest that child, because I want the satisfaction of knowing I'm safe. Yeah. That person needs to be hit in the head really hard with a hammer. Yeah. Until they stop wiggling. But not by me, because I'm a Quaker and we're nonviolent. <laughs> not nonviolent. Uh, non-aggressive. Non-aggressive. Oh, my. But, you know, I'm not a good Quaker. So, what can I say? <laughs> okay, so we beat up Janet Napolitano bad enough, right? Hey, let me take a swipe at the other Napolitano, the so-called Judge Napolitano. Now, this is the darling of uh, the Tea Party, the darling of libertarians. And I I watched his show, and I have to admit, I got tired of it after a little while because it kind of sang the same tune. And I I started getting a little frustrated with him. And he's one of these libertarians that's a kind of a... And I'm sorry, I may be really upsetting some of our our listener base, but, but bear me out on this. Judge, I, what's his name? Andrew Napolitano. So, Judge um, Andrew Neapolitan. Yeah. Um, Andrew Napolitano seems like a nice guy. Seems like a personable guy. Seems like an honest man. Kind of a guy that you'd probably enjoy having dinner with. You know, I have nothing personal against him. 
Um, however, the one thing that struck me when he very first appeared on the scene was that he's a, a former fairly hard right winger. Mm-hmm. And when the Bush administration really, when it really became apparent that they were failing big time, there were a lot of these right-wing people that swarmed into the libertarian group, put on libertarian hats, put on libertarian shirts, and started singing libertarian songs and pretending like they were one of us. Right. Now, again, I'm not, I'm not saying that that... Who knows what's in Andrew Napolitano's heart and in his mind? We have a... Nikki, our, the, the family dog, has just joined our <laughs> podcast. She decided she's very interested in this topic. Yes. Um, so who knows what's in the heart and what's in the mind of any person. We can't right. judge. He, he may, in his heart and in his mind, he may be as good a libertarian. You know, we, we get, we talked about getting your libertarian card stamped or whatever. Right. So maybe he's got his libertarian card stamp and he's ready for a whole new sandwich. But, you know, here's the thing that strikes me with him. He was a right-wing judge. He retired as a right-wing judge. He goes on Fox News. And he gives commentary on Fox News. He supports, you know, the, he talks about the Mises Institute. He talks about Ron Paul. He has a lot of libertarians on his television show. And guess where he was over just a couple days ago? Mm-mm. He was one of the speakers at a very exclusive gathering of the, is it Coke or Koch? I think it's... The, the unbelievably, it's, it's spelled it's spelled Koch, but it's pronounced Coke. Yeah. I believe yeah. the unbelievably wealthy billionaire right wing family that supports all kind of right wing causes that were uh, they were essentially the enemy of Murray Rothbard when he was alive because they baited him into helping them set up the Cato Institute, gave him uh, shares, actual monetary shares in the Cato Institute. And then yanked it all out from underneath him and voided the shares, which Murray probably could have pursued a legal action and and won. But Murray Rothbard, being the good libertarian that he was, said, you know, I'm not going to air this dirty laundry. I'm not going to go to the state Mm -hmm. and expect the state to bring me justice. Right. Uh, many libertarians should learn a lesson from that, that we, when we have a problem among ourselves, we should be able to use arbitration, excuse me, arbitration and fix that problem rather than running to the state and Mm -hmm. expecting the state to help a problem. Jack booted heel of the state. Yeah. Yeah. That, you know, that just screams hypocrite when one libertarian has, (laughs) it's, it's probably, it's probably bad, but I have a tendency to distrust anyone who is saying, you know, that they're a libertarian and yet they are, you know, pasting their talk show with American flags and red, white, and blue Mm. graphics and, you know, proud to be an American, that kind of stuff. Like, that that just screams... Nationalism. That that screams that they're a Decepticon. Yeah. The, <laughs> and we should point out the, decif- the, the deciference. The deciference. Boy. I bushelized that one. <laughs> the dif- the, the, there's a vast difference between being patriotic and being nationalistic. Yeah. And I even did an art- article on this. Um, you can find it on, at badquaker.com. But uh, being patriotic... 
in its true sense, not in the way we abuse the word now, but being patriotic in the true sense, means uh, to have a certain loyalty to your family, to the the culture that you're in and the people that are, you're surrounded with, your neighborhood, um, the uh, even a wider group of people that you live among, mm-hmm. to have a certain amount of loyalty and friendship and, and acknowledgement that that those are your people and, and you wish to protect them from outside harm. That's different from nationalism. You have a shared history, a shared culture, yeah, yeah, a shared, exactly. you know, all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, a geographical uh, relationship. Mm-hmm. All these things. There's nothing harmful in any of those things. Even if you have certain... I'm not real comfortable with it, but certain imagery that that you use to acknowledge that unites you. you right. know, this can still be harmless. But nationalism comes in when the state becomes the center of that patriotism. Right. And when this, when nationalism happens and, and, and it usurps true patriotism, nationalism puts itself as the center of that patriotism. Mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden it's not the community that matters and it's not your friends and it's not your neighbors and it's not your loved ones and your family members. It's the state. Right. The state becomes not only the center of your patriotism, but the state becomes your God. Yeah. Now, it may surround itself and may the state may be holding up a cross or holding up a a, a, a crescent moon or a, you know or whatever symbols or or whatever of any particular religion that it's trying to to propagate. But that's all false. Right. That's that's just using religion to to support the state. In nationalism, mm-hmm. um, that's horrible. Yeah, that's deadly. And and you know the the state um, is such a horrible thing that it has to put up a front for people to look at. Right. It can't just be you know here's the state. It yeah. has to be you know religion or government or corporation or you know mm-hmm. whatever. It has these. Our family. It, uh, uh, I can't remember which branch of the government I saw this the other day. It might be FEMA. I think it's FEMA that has recently changed the language they use, and they refer to themselves as the uh, as your government family or something like that. Yeah, I, I heard about that. Did you see that. that? I don't remember the exact word. That's just they sickening. Used, but... that, that just makes your blood want to run cold. Yeah. You know. Like, oh, really? The government's part of my family? Like, what part of my family? Like, my big brother? Yeah. Is that what we're talking about? Or perhaps... A big sis? The motherland? The motherland? Fatherland? Deutschland, Deutsch... No, now I'm going to upset our listeners in Germany. Hey, guys, I don't blame you guys for Nazism. It's okay. It happens sometimes, <laughs> okay? We have as probably as many active Nazis in the United States right now as there were in Germany in 1939. Probably. That's pretty disgusting, but it's true. And half the ones in the United States who are active Nazis don't even realize they are. Mm-hmm. But if you sit down and analyze what they believe, ta-da. Yep. Anyway, where were we going? We were beating up Janet Napolitano. Oh, I know. I was beating up uh, Andrew Napolitano for going out and being a speaker for the <laughs> we were, Koch brothers. We were beating up Snowball and Napoleon. That's right. Snowball and Napoleon. Both the pigs. Oh, my. <laughs> yeah, we're, we'll probably get email over that one, because Andrew Napolitano is kind of loved among the libertarian family. Yeah. (laughs) 
You know, and maybe he's just confused. He hasn't been a libertarian that long. And maybe he doesn't even know about what happened between mm-hmm. Murray Rothbard and the Koch brothers. Maybe he doesn't know that. Right. Um, maybe it's not his fight, so he doesn't care. And, you know, hey, here's the thing. If the Koch brothers offered me, like, you know, $3,000 to fly to Colorado and speak at their little engagement. Well, you probably wouldn't go because you don't want to fly. Well, no, I wouldn't fly. Uh, well, it's the Koch brothers. They'd have their own... True. You, they you know, they have a private jet. Well, they'd probably have, like, uh, uh, <laughs> that would land, and, the, you know, and the shadow people would be out there, and the lizard people in the background. The black helicopter. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> We're gonna get hacked. Okay, so... <laughs> um... <laughs> <laughs> Anything else on that one? I don't think so. Okay. Um, let's move along to a recap of something we mentioned before. Last week, we we hinted, we didn't really talk specifics, but we hinted about... Yeah, the, last, the last five minutes, we kind of just went, yeah. oh, by the way. <laughs> tease, tease. Um, we, we hinted a little bit about the Appalachian Gypsies. Um, you have to look around a little bit to find the references and so forth, and... And keep in mind, nothing that we're talking about here is absolutely set in stone because we don't have any solid evidence. Right. Pretty much everything we're working on here is theory. Right. Um, it's, it's, you know, trying to put together the puzzle when you don't have the box that says what the picture looks like. Exactly. Yeah. And you're not sure how many pieces have been and are missing. There's like three puzzles in the box. Yeah. And you're trying to make one puzzle out of it. <laughs> So, as uh, trying to look through Appalachian history, folklore, writings about Appalachia, trying to figure out exactly where I came from and, and what kind of people these were that, that I would see at these family reunions and so forth, I ran into a number of interesting things, like, for instance, uh, folklore stories of Appalachia, about um, things like fairies and uh, goblins and things like this and ghost stories and and fun things like that Mm -hmm. that all kind of seem to always have some kind of a base in reality but all have, you know, some twists that you would expect from folklore and from ghost stories and whatnot. Um, And it was always fun. And I didn't... I never really sat down and did heavy research on Appalachia. It was always the kind of a thing that was whenever I would get the chance, whenever the opportunity to read a new book or or see something new about something like that. So there was no concentrated effort. It's just absorbing it over a very long period of time. And there were always a few things that would pop back up, like the discussion of Appalachian gypsies. Um, mentioning of things like Black Irish mm-hmm. and of um, Black Choctaw, Cho- wow, Black Choctaw, mm-hmm. um, um, pe- people telling that their particular family um, had Cherokee was a real popular one in Eastern Kentucky to say, well. Grandma so-and-so was a Cherokee. But then if you do the math, how could Grandma so-and-so be a Cherokee when she lived in 1890? Right. And the Cherokees pretty much all were driven to uh, Oklahoma by, what, the 1830s or something like that? Well, and you can look at 
it, there's not a lot of pictures, but every now and again, pictures will pop up of people who they say, you know, oh, these, these were, you know, this was an Indian. And yeah. They're like, that's, it's not. That, no, it looks more <laughs> maybe Italian yeah. or Greek or, you know, maybe even like Turkish. Yeah. Uh, uh, possibly from Spain or or Portugal, but Morocco perhaps, but not, not Indian. Indian. <laughs> um, and then within my own family, there was a great effort. Oh, I'm going to say mid '70s to get a family tree put together, and uh, there were quite a few different people working on the family tree. And they all kept talking about this person in the family or that person in the family that married an Indian girl, and and they would all have this kind of thing. And the and these would always have only a first name; there would never be a last name. But the first name would not sound like something you would expect to be an Indian name. Right. Uh, oftentimes, when Indian, uh, especially when an Indian woman would marry into a white family. If she had a name that was difficult to pronounce or or whatever... They would give her one like Mary. Yeah, they would just name her... They would give her a, 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 so so to speak, a white name. Right. And just blend her in with the rest of the family. Um, But instead, I I think I used the name Juanita Mm -hmm. last uh, week. Names like that pop up pretty regularly in Appalachia. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about early 1800s. Uh, so it's not like they saw names like that on TV or right. heard it in the radio or even read it in books or anything. There weren't really probably a lot of books in Appalachia in 1810, you Except know. maybe Bibles. That's probably pretty much about it. Another name that pops up now and then that was a hint to me because of a whole different thing is the name Castile. Now... Why would people in Appalachia, Scotch-Irish, be named Castile? Mm-hmm. Now, there was in, six, was it 1688? Was that the defeat of the Spanish Armada? 1688. Google is wonderful. Uh, should have put Spanish Armada instead of 1688. Spanish. It's only Google if you know. It's only wonderful if you know how to use it. <laughs> Spanish Armada. No one expects the Spanish Armada. <laughs> Watch out, we'll use the comfy chair. 15, 1588. Okay, so in 1588, the, the Spanish Armada attempted to invade England, and a variety of silly things happened, and they ended up failing utterly to invade England. About that time, what did I say, 1588? About that time, uh, some of those, the members of the Spanish Armada, the the seamen, uh, the sailors, and not just sailors, there was, uh, the Spanish Armada had a lot of, they had an invasionary force. Right. So they had a lot of regular foot soldiers, and they had cooks, and they had, you know, uh, people who worked leather, and they had uh, um, blacksmiths. They right. had they had everything it took to support horses, an invasion. people who tend yeah. horses. Exactly. Um uh, wheel rights, I mean, everything. And so a bunch of those people ended up um, uh, basically walking ashore from their shipwrecks uh, onto the Irish coast. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was an influx, influx of uh, Spaniards into Ireland uh, in 1588. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes when people see someone in um, Appalachia, 
with a Spanish surname or a Spanish first name, the excuse pops up, well, they're black Irish. Right. You know. Because that's who the black Irish were. That's, that's, yeah, in Ireland, the people that were called black Irish were actually people who blended between the Spanish and the Irish. Because when, cause when these sailors, or, or in the case of people who were just in the military or were support personnel or whatever, they're survivors of a shipwreck. They wander onto the shore. They're not any kind of a threat to the right, community. Right, They're not looking to invade. No, because really, they were all conscripts anyway. They had nothing against England. They, right. weren't, they were being forced to do, to do this. So they wander onto the shore in Ireland. The people of Ireland are like, you know, hey, there's shipwreck people here. We help them. That's right. what people do. They brought them on shore. They welcomed them they into their communities. They the community because they were, you know, useful people. Yeah. And so you do have this influx of genetic uh, uh, influence from Spain into Ireland, which gives some, uh, you know, darker eyes and darker hair and things like this. And so the excuse has been in Appalachia that when you see these things pop up in Appalachia, well, surely they must have come from that. Right. There's a problem with that. The problem is that the so-called Scotch-Irish in Appalachia, were not Irish. Yeah. They were Scottish who were displaced from Scotland, forced to go to Ireland. Now, keep in mind, anytime you have two groups of people who are forced to intermingle, there's going to be some, some marriages. Right. There's going to be young teenage son and a young teenage daughter that don't really care about the politics or the heritage or the language difference or the religion difference. So there's going to be intermingling. But I tell you what, in Northern England, and I'm sorry, Northern Ireland, especially at that time frame, when you took the native Irish that were there and you literally at a bayonet point pushed them out of their cities and brought these Scots in on them, mm -hmm. they were not happy and there was not a lot of intermarrying. And the Scots were not happy too. No, they did not want to be there. It was a matter of... Uh, leave the borderland between England and Scotland at the point of the bayonet, or feel the point of that bayonet. Right. Um, this was an ugly situation for both the Irish and the Scottish that were forced to immigrate. So when the Scottish got there, they got there as forced labor for the English lords who had forcibly taken control of the lands of Ulster. Right. So this is not a pleasant situation. We're not happy marrying into... So the odds of having someone who was shipwrecked from the Spanish Armada, then blended into Irish culture, then blended into the Scotch-Irish culture. Meanwhile, keeping their last name. Keeping, yeah, through a hundred years, over a hundred years. No. Yeah. Uh, not going to happen. Not only that... Um, Considering the fact that most of the people who came into Appalachia from the the Scotch Irish people mm -hmm. couldn't even manage to keep a hold of their last name just tr in the travel yeah. from there. Yeah. Um, so, what we do have is we have these people popping up in Appalachia, and so some of them are blamed on being on Black Irish, which is not the case. We've debunked that. Right. Um, some of them are blamed on being Indian, or if it is the case, it certainly cannot explain all of them. If you have one or two right. that pop up, you can make that claim, but... But that doesn't explain the anomaly and the shape right. of the back of the skull that, that we that were talking about. That doesn't explain the genetic markers. Right. With the eyes and the teeth and the other things that we were talking about. 
So, um, so, so that deals with the the so-called Black Irish, the uh, Spanish uh, attempt at the Spanish Armada. Okay. Um, so then the so then uh, how about the Indians? Well, uh, if you have this person in your family tree who is supposedly Indian. Uh, and you, you want to call them a, a black Choctaw, or that you you're in uh, you're in um, West Virginia, and you're told you know great grandma Seth was uh, was a Cherokee. Well, that's interesting because there were no Cherokee in modern day West Virginia. Right. That was Shawnee, and that was there was uh, I can't remember who else. It may have been. Those are those are the tri- those are the uh, that's the area of the um, Great Lakes tribes, mm-hmm. uh, Ohio, West Virginia, Pennsylvania. Um, Kentucky was a blend of several several groups of Indians used Kentucky and especially around the borders of it. And you get down into Tennessee, and there's different tribes were functioning down in there, which included the Cherokee, uh, but. The Cherokee were mostly moved out of the southeastern United States by when the Trail of Tears. That's mm-hmm. what that's all about. They pushed them out of there and forced them to go to Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. So if you've got somebody who's marrying into your family in the 1880s, who looks very dark skin, dark hair, uh, and only you know it, it doesn't make sense that right. that they're Cherokee. Right. But it does make sense that the family would say they're Cherokee rather than some of the alternatives. Right. Because when the census guy would come through, the census person, especially in the early 1800s, would try to mark them as uh, being African American, escaped slave, or a freed slave. Right. So that they could only be marked as half a person on the on right. the uh, census. Most people don't realize this, but uh, up until what was it? I, like the sixteenth, fourteenth amendment. I can't remember which. Uh, blacks were still considered a half a person on the census. Mm-hmm. I can't remember exactly when that changed. So, if you want to weaken the voting capability of a particular area, or you want to weaken the amount of congressional seats for a particular area, you have a very real motive there to call as many of them. Uh, indicate as many of them as having black, uh, black or African American uh, roots as possible. Right. So, so there's an incentive to say that on the census, and now right. you actually go and get the census. I don't know about all the different years, but uh, 1810 is online, and you can scroll through it yourself. But um, there's families on there. Within the area where my family's from in eastern Kentucky, that the census calls black in one census, and the very same family, it registers them as white mm-hmm. in the very next census. And it's the same family living in the same place. Right. And the difference is a different census worker right. registers them differently. So, they're likely, I'm sure there was some Indian inter- intermixing, but the right. Indian characteristics that we're talking about are not the facial features and characteristics that we're seeing. Uh, so that debunks the American, the Native American theory. We've already debunked the Black Irish theory. Um, the third theory was there was there a third theory? I don't think there was a third theory. I think we're stuck I with the, our, th- our, our theory, theory is the, the third, third theory. theory. <laughs> 
let's say it again in union. <laughs> our theory is the third theory. Our theory is that join us. Resistance is futile. You will be assimilated. So now we're going, I'm going to pronounce a word, and I'm probably going to butcher that word. The word is melungeon. The word for today is melungeon. Melungeon. <laughs> Learn when it. Somebody says it. <laughs> Sirens go off and balloons come down. According to how old you are. If you're old enough, then, then this reference will make, make sense. A duck comes down, a stuffed duck comes down out of the, out from a head with, with a note in its mouth on the note is written melungeon and he's <laughs> clearly on a wire and then you hear that's uh, Groucho Marx. <laughs> so there are people in Appalachia called Melungeon, and I have no idea where that name comes from. And there are a variety of theories as to where these people, what their origin is. In eastern Tennessee, some of the Melungeon people are um, more genetically um, true than in other parts of Appalachia, but mm-hmm. but the Melungeon characteristics uh, have scattered throughout most of Appalachia because in our theory, they were already settled in and had already were functioning among the Choctaw and among the Cherokee at the time that the Scotch-Irish moved into Appalachia. Mm-hmm. Now, we have every indication to believe that there was no real animosity between the Melungeons and the Native Americans that were here. We have every reason to believe that they blended in fairly peaceably because they would have every motivation to. Right. Survival requires peaceably uh, migrating into an area and, and being absorbed by them. Um, and the same way with the, the Scotch-Irish, is they migrated into Appalachia, they mostly did so under peaceable circumstances. There's a lot of lies out there by Eastern establishment media that tries to say that the that that they did so violently, um, and because they emphasize on a few key clashes. Right. But as you analyze those key clashes between the Scotch Irish and the Native Americans, you f- you usually find agitators within the colonists right. who had something to gain by pitting these two groups against each other. Right. So I'm not saying that the, the movement of the Scotch-Irish into Appalachia was entirely peaceable, but largely it was peaceable. It had to be, if you just compare the numbers, as they moved in, in stark poverty, mm-hmm. uh, you know, essentially, if you think of like the Grapes of Wrath, that's the condition these people, the grapes, the people from the Grapes of Wrath would have been rich compared to what the right. Scotch-Irish were when they were moving into Appalachia. It was a last-ditch thing for them to find survival. Uh, so they didn't move in by force. They didn't have a lot of, of uh, supplies on hand, and they didn't have an army behind them and so right. forth. And when they got there... They probably didn't even have guns and things because... They probably wouldn't have had a lot of armament when they first got there. Uh, the famous Kentucky rifle was a modification of the famous Pennsylvania rifle, which was developed by the German um, uh, uh, craftsmen that had moved into western Pennsylvania in the late 1600s. Right. So literally, the Appalachian, the the Scotch-Irish in Appalachia were digging out coal uh, out of the ground, surface coal, and they were digging out iron ore, 
and they were making pig iron, and they were carting it on muleback all the way to western Pennsylvania, and they were trading pig iron for implements. Right. Now, the trading of pig iron for implements got them enough stuff from the from the uh, from the Dutch from the uh, many of which many of the Quakers and a lot of the the Germans that were uh, or that we call Dutch were settling in uh, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. and so the Scotch Irish were able to take the pig iron that they had brought out of Appalachia and trade that for things like the Pennsylvania rifle and right. later the development of the Kentucky rifle. Right. So by and other things that they were making in Appalachia. Sure, like uh, you need you need things other than iron. You need things that are made of copper. You need you need things like uh, copper pots mm-hmm. with copper coils on the top. Now, what would you make with a copper pot with a copper coil? Yeah, baby. And <laughs> corn. Because there seemed to be corn that was grown there. Because in Pennsylvania. There was a lot of apple trees, Mm -hmm. and there was a lot of apple growth, and there was a lot of apple cider being produced. Mm -hmm. But Appalachia started growing corn at an early stage, and barley, and there was a lot of uh, sorghum. There was a lot of sorghum being grown. So if you have barley, and you have corn, and you have sorghum, and you're growing it, it's really easy to convert that into a little bit better moneymaker you know, than sorghum. Right. Uh, you you show up at the at the store at the at the uh, trading post or or country store or whatever with a truckload of with a trade with a uh, cartload. <laughs> a cartload of sorghum and they go great sorghum. But if you take that sorghum and you mash it and you develop it and you still it down and you bring it in as uh, nice mountain water. Oak trees. Yes, too. to make, uh, and they were skilled craftsmen. Even though they were poor and hiding in the mountains of Appalachia, they were still skilled. So it's not that hard to make a barrel if you if you're a if right, you're a if cooper. You're a barrel maker. Yeah, and so you make a barrel out of the native tree, which happens to be white oak. And the white oak, especially if you char the inside, then it becomes the perfect filter to make just a wonderful, wonderful elixir out of. And that was valuable. More so than the native uh, uh, apple cider that they were growing in uh, in Pennsylvania. That's way off the topic. <laughs> well, <laughs> ish. But now we know why in seven in in the seven in the mid seventeen hundreds when uh, George Washington was putting together his army, mm-hmm. and there were Appalachian volunteers that would show up, and he hated them. If you read his uh, his own personal notes to other between his correspondences mm-hmm. with with other people, he hated the people coming out of Appalachia for a couple reasons. First off, they were undisciplined. Mm-hmm. Uh, they wouldn't wear uniforms. Now, there's a lot of legends and, and myth about George Washington that he fought a guerrilla warfare. No, 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 no. He did a lot of retreating, right. and he did a lot of marching, and he right. did a lot of executing his own men. Right. But he didn't actually do very much uh, guerrilla warfare. Right. He hated guerrilla warfare. Um, it was uncivilized. Yes. He wanted to produce, he wanted his men to be a proper European army. That's why he got uh, Baron von Stubing to come in and pretend like he's a baron, and trained them in a proper uh, European battle Which uh, fights. Which made them lose pretty much all the battles that they Yeah, well, fought. you know, they had to then depend on the French to come and save them. 
But the but Washington hated the way the Appalachian people were because they were undisciplined. They wouldn't wear uniforms. Uh, he couldn't make them stay with him if they decided they wanted to go home. They just leave. Right. Um, he couldn't get them to stop shooting the officers. They would when they when the battle would start. They would just whip out their Kentucky rifles and shoot the officers on the other side of the field. Right. And this upset Washington because proper gentlemen don't do this. Well, Appalachians do. Right. <laughs> That's what you do. You <laughs> win the battle. Yeah. Because, you know, these are people that had been displaced from their homelands so often that uh, they had learned mm-hmm. to win. Yeah, and actually they... You know, and they finally had a home. They finally had the means to defend their home. Mm-hmm. And they weren't going to risk, you know... Right. Being the proper way. And plus they had a chip on their shoulder against the English to begin with. That's true. They probably found it very entertaining <laughs> to shoot English officers. Uh, the uh, the Scotch-Irish were used extensively. This is how they got the name Hillbilly. Mm-hmm. It has nothing to do with Appalachia. They were called Hillbillies because they were from the hills between Ireland, between England and Scotland. They mm-hmm. were hi- literally hiding in those hills. They had been displaced out of Scotland, and they were hiding in the hills between Scotland and England. And when um, um, William, William, William Orange, William of Orange, was attempting to take the crown, they took his side. So they were called hillbillies, mocking them. They were, they were backwards people from the hills supporting this uh, usurper king, uh, but that king won. Mm-hmm. Now, once William and Mary won and took over, of course, what did they do? They deported the, <laughs> their very supporters off to Scotland. I mean, off to Ireland. Very nice of them. Shocking. <laughs> Trust the state? Who would Think have, the state's going to help you? Who would have ever thought that would have happened? Get in there and work with the state? <laughs> and what does it do? So that's totally not, has, has nothing to do with Melungeons. <laughs> Though, let me, let me point out the one thing. Uh, take the back, take your index finger and start at the back of your spine and run your finger up your neck bone, so to speak, the, the spinal column of your neck. And when it hits the skull, if you find a sort of a deep indentation followed by a pronounced lump on the back of the skull, you might just be melungeon. Uh, mine is not distinctive at all um, because I have a lot of stone uh, family dominance in my genetic structure. Um, but other members of my family, it pops up pretty, pretty uh, clearly in them. That's one of the distinguishing features. That's a real quick one. You can just take your finger and run it right back there, and if you've got a knot about the size of a goose egg on the back of your skull, right where it connects with the, with the, uh, with your top of your spine on your on your neck there. What is that called? Neck bones connected to the yeah. skull bone. Anyway, um, you might be melungeon. Uh, that's one of the characteristic uh, uh, indications. Um, so who were these people? We walked all around it. We talked the whole hour. We walked all the way around. We didn't give our theory. Here's our theory. And I don't know if I should pollute it by saying our theory, because I don't know if you actually accept this, or I've been pounding it into your head for years, so uh, I don't know if it's fair to call it our theory. Right. But, um, here's, here's what I think, and this is the best I can come up with, and, and it's just total conjecture. Right. I have very little evidence to support this. Well, I think we should start out laying 
specific things that we know happened. Okay. Um, we know that there was a purging in Spain. Well, let's, uh, let's go back further than that. Okay. Uh, not long after the fall of the Roman Empire, there was a huge upset in among the Mong... Uh, this was about the time that the... The Mughals, Mongols, the Mongols came in, attacked northern India, and they set up the Mughal Empire. Uh, I'm not sure the exact dates on that, but there was a lot of upset of, of, uh, there was a lot of migration that took place around in that time. So between the attack of the Mongol Empire into northern India and the fall of the Roman Empire, the Romans, of course, didn't reach India, but the Persians were the buffer between them and but around that time, there was a great migration out of possibly northern India, possibly Kashmir, possibly the Pashtun Valley. Mm-hmm. Somewhere in that area, there was a migration out of there. And these people came out, made their way through Armenia, and at some point on at or around Armenia, this group split. Now, these things we know. Part of them went into Europe. Mm-hmm. Probably they probably did not cross through Turkey and Istanbul. They probably went around the northern part of the uh, Black Sea. Is that the Black Sea right there? I believe so. I think so. They probably went around the northern part of the Black Sea and came in through Romania and all that area. They were very migrant. They literally were gypsies. They, that's who we called the gypsies. They had wagons. They had music. They, they were called gypsies because the the lower half of them, some of them migrated into Egypt and then correct. migrated back up into Europe. Right. And because they had spent time in Egypt, uh, they thought that they were from Egypt. Yeah. And so gypsy is short for Egyptian. Yeah. Uh, but they're not actually from Egypt. Right. And there's a good likelihood that the where that split that I was talking about, that split took some of them through Palestine and into Egypt, mm-hmm. which at the time would have been a, been a very comfortable place to be. Mm-hmm. So they probably stayed there literally for hundreds of years. And some still are. Yeah, yeah. Because they have kind of dropped mm-hmm. people throughout. Yeah, through the whole process. <laughs> um so some of them probably came back out of Egypt and then rejoined some of those that were in Europe and therefore taking on the, the name Gypsy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but these culture they brought pieces of each culture as they went, mm-hmm. and they brought part of their own culture as they went. The, uh, the, the, um, some of the mystical characteristics mm-hmm. of their religion, some of the more what might be called paganistic parts of their religion, they held on to those. Of Hindu in their religion quite, quite as well. a bit, yeah, and a lot of the fortune telling and a lot of that is is Hindu based. Um, so, uh, and people like this have to be entertainers to a certain extent in order to make a place for themselves. Because if they're not entertaining, uh, they're they're strangers. They're a little weird. They they don't dress the same. They don't talk the same. People have a tendency to suspect them of things. Right. But if they're entertainers, if they can entertain the crowd in some way, then you, you make a room for them. You know? Right. Plus, people will give you money. Yeah, exactly. And you can continue your lifestyle. At some point, some of these people made their way all the way to Morocco and then crossed across the Straits of Gibraltar. This is during the Moorish occupation of Spain. And some of them made their way through the body of Spain, some of them all the way up into the Pyrenees, 
and some of them out into modern day um, Portugal. Portugal. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> into modern day Portugal. Now, these things we know. During uh, about the time that the Christians drove out the Moors of Spain, so we're talking the time of El Cid, we're talking just right before uh, the discovery of America by uh, uh, Columbus and all that. The gypsies fell into bad favor in Spain. Mm -hmm. uh, as it turns out, they weren't Christians. And as it turns out, um, the Inquisition needed to find out the, the question. <laughs> you can't say it like that. You have to say, the Inquisition. <laughs> um, there was a great curiosity. They were inquiring. <laughs> inquiring minds <laughs> want to know. Um, so they, the gypsies had a hard time during the reoccupation of Spain by, uh, by Christians. It was not a good time to be a gypsy in Spain. However, not long... It wasn't really a good time to be much of anything other than hardcore Catholic in Spain. Well, even hardcore Catholics, if you had the wrong political friends, yeah. you know, all of a sudden yeah. that could be questioned. There was a lot of bad things going on. Well, at around the same... Well, not the same time, but at another time that we know of, Spain had a colony. They had a... a um, they were founding a city in what is now modern-day Jacksonville. Uh, I believe so. And it, it later fell. I know the oldest Spanish uh, garrison in, in... Oldest continuous Spanish garrison in Florida was... Um, uh, was it St. Petersburg? No. Um, oh, I've driven past that place so many times. But anyway, at the time, they had a garrison in what's now... Um, what did I say Jackson. for Jacksonville, which is up on the, it's not down on the peninsula. It's up mm -hmm. on the main part. Okay. So we know this, we know that there were gypsies rounded up in Spain and, and probably not voluntarily. Right. And, and Moors. Yeah. And we know that there were, uh, Huguenots rounded up at the same time. And, uh, a similar thing took place in Portugal. Um, in Spain, they dis disposed of these unwanted people by sending them to uh, Jacksonville. Mm -hmm. uh, that that way, Spain didn't have to deal with them anymore. Right. In Portugal, they sent them to Brazil. Such a long line for the Inquisition chambers. Oh yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> uh, it never stops. So you, you're working day and night, day and night, stretching people apart, and you know, lighting people's feet on fire. And it just it never ends. <laughs> we have just got to get rid of some of these people. So, um, so once they got to Florida... Do they, you have a reservation? I'm awful. Yeah. <laughs> Check with me Tuesday. Um, so once they got to Florida, the Huguenots, being extremely religious, extremely Christian people, probably wouldn't have had a lot of tolerance for these gypsies. Um, now, these gypsies, again, were the ones that came across North Africa, mm -hmm. and they picked up traits as they came and went. So they had to leave. Now the story ends. We don't know where they went. Right. Now, if you just take a map and look at Jacksonville, and you say, I would, I'm stuck in Jacksonville, I have to go someplace, I can't go south, down into the peninsula, it's wild. Right. Uh, plus there are alligators. <laughs> there down. are giant monsters that will eat me. Um, and it's blazing hot in the summer, so every duck knows you go north. Right. 
So they probably would have gone north. Some of them would have possibly gone west, hit the Mississippi, and then gone north. Either way, they would have migrated right up into a place where they found the most beautiful place in the world, Appalachia. And there was nobody there that was intolerant of them. Yes. The, the, the Native Americans that were there, the Indians that were living there, the Choctaws, the, the Cherokee, and the other uh, Indians in the southeast we're already dealing with the European whites mm-hmm. who who were is not that great to deal with. And then here come these people who are downtrodden, who are willing to work, who want to survive, and who are not aggressive and are right. not trying to kill them or shoot them. Right. And, you know, Native Americans are, are, are not really known for being religiously intolerant. Yeah, correct. <laughs> Actually, inquisitive is more like it. Uh, pretty much any Native people... As long as they're, they don't have the state structure, mm-hmm. the uh, s- uh, religious intolerance walks hand in hand with the state. Yeah. So if you don't have a state structure, religious intolerance almost evaporates. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of curiosity. Uh, you know, as long as you're coming in peaceably, you can get away with all kinds of weird things. Right. <laughs> so they moved in and, and they were able to settle. So that this put them there. In the 1630s, 1640s, 1650s at the latest. But the Scotch-Irish didn't arrive till the 1660s. Right. So we have these two blendings of people with similar backgrounds as far as escaping persecution right. in Europe. Which is actually kind of funny because the gypsies that came north into Europe, mm-hmm. one of the few places that they eventually found that tolerated them better than pretty much anybody else mm-hmm. was Ireland and Scotland. True. Yeah, they quite a few of them moved into there and settled settled right in. Mm-hmm. There's a Brad a Brad Pitt movie that stars some of those that makes reference to some mm-hmm. of the uh, of the the descendants of those people where he he plays a fighter. Right. Wants to fight everybody. <laughs> okay, well we've exhausted our hour. <laughs> And we didn't really get to talk about much, did we? No. We did really. a lot of talking, but we didn't talk about much. And we were we were going to segue so nicely. We uh, never did. No. Well, we talked a lot about Melungeons, and we talked a lot about Appalachia, and we probably have, like, two listeners from Appalachia. And all of our listeners, like, in South Korea and in... In they're Hong like, Kong, what are you or talking about? yeah, and in in Australia, they're like, "Who cares?" Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's very interesting. The history of Appalachia is the history of a stateless people, anarchy, absolutely that was you know destroyed by the yeah. state. Yeah, we didn't get to. Oh, we didn't get to. Yeah, maybe another day. Yeah. Coal mine factory, coal mine, uh, uh, yeah, but what's the company called? Not the normal kind of company, but corporations. (laughs) (laughs) The corporations and the unions and how they work hand in hand to, to help destroy Appalachia. With the fist of the state. Yep. So. There you go. Be sure and listen next week. Uh, we try to put out a podcast. Part two of our ongoing 72-part series, The yeah. History of Appalachia. Um, we'll, we'll, uh, we will try, maybe try to bring something other than <laughs> Appalachian folklore to you. 
But we'll try to get another podcast every Wednesday. Of course, we can't see the future, so we can't say anything absolute whatsoever. And we can't see the past, so everything we just said, we made up. Absolutely. I'm Ben. And I'm Kai. Thanks a lot for listening, folks. <laughs>